0: We're exploring the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 8. We're in the third major section of the book, of course. The first section being chapter 1, the thing when John saw the vision of Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation has its own divinely inspired outline in chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus says, Write the things which thou hast seen, that is chapter 1. The things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches. And the things which shall be metatauta, or after these things, which starts from the first verse of chapter 4 onwards. And chapter 4 and 5, of course, were sort of the introduction to the main section of the book, in many people's mind. Chapters 6 through 19 is basically an expansion or detailing of what scholars call the 70th week of Daniel. We've talked about that in the past, but just to get this in perspective, in chapters 4 and 5, before the throne of God, we find Jesus Christ receiving, taking, the seven-sealed scroll. He opens the seven seals in chapter 6, which ushers forth all those strange uh, issues that we reviewed in chapter 6. Chapter 7 is sort of one of these parenthetical chapters. We notice, as we study the book of Revelation, that where there's these groups of seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, that there's always six and then a a break, sort of a change of subject, what scholars call a parenthetical passage, that sort of amplifies or editorializes or or deals with some related subject to the issue, but isn't necessarily chronologically tight or or contiguous. So we've had the six seals in chapter 6 opened, Chapter seven drops that for a while and talks about the hundred and forty-four thousand and the and the results of their ministry and, and ends in this threefold crescendo of praise. And so the first thing that greets us as we get to chapter eight is a strange, strange verse. Chapter eight, verse one. And when he'd opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I usually point out that that proves there are no attorneys in heaven. But of course, <laughs> but of course, and, and some people say no women in heaven. There's all these cute cracks that are made about that verse. But the truth of the matter is it's a strange verse. There seems to be sort of a catching of the breath because if you've been reading from chapter seven into this, you've just finished this incredible crescendo of praise. And the best analogy I can think of, if you've ever listened to Handel's Messiah and you get to the Hallelujah chorus. This incredible piece of music, when it ends, you know, there's no place to go. You just sort of catch your breath. And it's a, sort of the silence after this enormous crescendo. What we're going to discover unfolds in chapter 8 are the opening of the trumpet judgments. Because the seventh seal turns out to involve seven angels with seven trumpets, and each time they blow a trumpet, it brings forth some cataclysmic judgment, and they somewhat escalate as they go. In chapter 8, we have four of those. In chapter 9, we have three more, making the seven trumpets. The first four have a certain characteristic that we'll explore in a moment as we get into the text. The last three are of a different kind, uh, very demonic, very uh, uh, spooky stuff, and uh, that's... One reason perhaps the, uh, the, the the book breaks between chapter 8 and 9. From 5th, 6th, and 7th trumpets are quite different. But one of the things I want to share with you is just a viewpoint. And to the best of my knowledge, I have not been able to find this viewpoint expressed in any of the commentaries. For 40 years, I've collected commentaries on the book of Revelation. So I've, I've been exposed to most of the different viewpoints. But there's an observation I want to share with you that may not have any relevance at all. It's the kind of thing, though, that you can explore on your own and come to your own conclusions. And that's the the suggestion that the book of Joshua in the Old Testament seems to frame or form an anticipatory model of the book of Revelation. When you study the book of Joshua, the first thing that hits you, if you're a careful student, is the name of the book itself, which is Yehoshua, which Joshua is the Hebrew, where Jesus is the Greek. So you have have a book in the Old Testament that is, in a sense, um, uh, carries the same name as Jesus does, Yehoshua. In fact, the book deals with this military leader who leads God's people in the dispossession of the land of the usurpers. In other words, um, Joshua dispossesses the land; it leads a conquest of Canaan, the dispossession of the land uh, on behalf of God's people. In the book of Revelation, of course, we're going to discover that Jesus is doing the same thing, except he just moved the decimal point over. He's dispossessing the planet Earth of the Prince of this world. Who is the Prince of this world? And what is being rested free among other, a number of things going on? But one of the things we're going to see is that this all moves to a climactic. Uh, uh, movement here in the book of Revelation. As you study the book of Joshua, there's another thing that's not so obvious, and that is that the land of Canaan originally had ten tribes, three were dealt with, there were seven left. And that's kind of interesting because if you study the prophecies of Daniel and as Revelation will highlight later in the book, again we have ten, uh, you know, uh, seven heads and ten horns, because originally ten nations and, and three are put down by the Antichrist and so forth. So that pattern is suggestive there. When you study the book of Joshua, you notice that they crossed over Jordan on the 10th of Nisan. They were circumcised, because bear in mind, for 40 years they hadn't been keeping the law. So 40 years, uh, anyway, they they circumcised the people on the 14th of Nisan. Those dates are familiar in your ears if you're a student of the Bible, because the 10th of Nisan is the date of the triumphal entry, when the Lamb of God presents himself for inspection and effect, presenting himself as the Mashiach Nagid on the very day that Gabriel had told Daniel he would. Uh, some five centuries earlier. The crucifixion takes place on the 14th of Nisan. God seems to orchestrate his calendar very, very precisely. The flood of Noah ends on the 17th of Nisan, and that's also the date that Jesus is resurrected. So God began his new beginning under Noah on the same date in anticipation as our new beginning in Jesus Christ. So those are all interesting things from the calendar. You begin to sense, if nothing else, the evidence of design. Because our main premise in our studies is that these 66 books, penned by 40 authors over thousands of years, are an integrated message system. And every number, every place name, every detail is here by design. One of the questions you want to always ask as we're exploring this as a little detour up front is who really fought the battle of Jericho? And I'm sure you've heard uh, wonderful music expressing the idea that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. But I hate to break that illusion, but I'm going to. You want to turn to Joshua chapter 5. Because this may have an impact on our understanding of Revelation 8, strangely enough. So uh, Joshua chapter five, they crossed over Jordan. They made their base at Gilgal. They're facing uh, seven tribes. The strongest tribe were the Amorites. The capital of the Amorites was Jericho, which incidentally means house of the moon god. But anyway, Joshua apparently is on sentry duty. In verse thirteen it says, Joshua five thirteen. It came to pass it when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. So Joshua encounters someone there with the sword drawn. And Joshua challenges him like a sentry. He says, And Joshua went unto him and said, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? You get the impression Joshua bear is a military commander. He's not going to mess around here. But I want you to notice verse 14. Many people miss this. And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. And said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? Now we have a guy there that apparently is some kind of very special being. Now this kind of thing occurs several t- places in the Bible. Daniel encounters a guy like this and starts to worship him. And he says, See thou do it not, because I'm a fellow servant. John, the book of Revelation, encounters a similar situation. With one exception, angels don't allow themselves to be worshipped. One angel sought worship, and he got himself in a lot of trouble, okay? Isaiah 14 tells us about the career and the origin of Lucifer. But this one not only permits it, he commands it. You see, in verse 15, as Captain Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And and Joshua did so. In fact, this person uses the very phrase that Joshua would remember some forty years earlier. In his ears, when the the voice of the burning bush told Moses to do the same thing. So this is, in effect, claiming to be the voice of the burning bush. He calls himself the captain of the Lord's host. That's misleading to our ears, because we tend to think of a captain as a field-grade officer. The term is used here as number one. He's the head of the whole thing. So this is obviously none other than Jesus Christ, by simply the fact that he's ordering himself to be worshipped. And uh, if you know your Bible, that, that does it. Now, so that starts to give us some attention to this battle of Jericho. Because who's the real leader? Jesus Christ. Well, that's kind of interesting. As we study the battle of Jericho, if you do it, and I'll let you do it on your own time, but if you study you'll notice some strange things. You'll notice that most of the laws of the Torah are ignored. The Ark of the Covenant isn't supposed to go to the war. It leads the parade. The Levites were exempt from military duty in Numbers 1, 2, 3, and so forth. And here they lead the procession around Jericho. Furthermore, the Torah says that six days they work, the seventh they rest. In this case, on the seventh day, they do seven times as much. And before all of this, what Joshua does, he sends in these two guys. We call them spies. But if you think about it, what did they bring back? What kind of military intelligence did they bring back that impacted Joshua's battle plan? I always used to wonder why Bill Cosby didn't do a number on Joshua's staff meeting. He did such a marvelous job with Noah. You've all probably heard Bill Cosby's Noah thing. It's become a classic. Can you imagine what he could do with Joshua's staff meeting? All his generals around there. And here's the, here's the battle plant, guys. We're going to march around the city once a day for seven days, six days. Seven day we're going to march on seven times. Then we're going to blow our, blow our horns and shout, and the walls are going to come down. I would have loved to see the expression on his generals as he, expressed, he laid out this battle plan. <laughs> These two guys that... W- went to, uh, were sent in ahead, obviously weren't really spies, we call them that. What did they accomplish? They got Rahab saved. So I would suggest you call them witnesses. Now you try to tell me that Joshua sent in two witnesses in advance. That starts to sound like Revelation chapter 11. We haven't got there yet, but it's a very prominent feature of the proceedings, as you'll discover as we go a few more chapters. There's something else that catches my ear, and that's why I wanted to bring this up at this particular time. Because obviously the seven trumpets of Revelation are suggestive of the seven uh, sevens of trumpets in the book of Joshua. But there's another detail in the book of Joshua that you miss unless you look for it. During those seven days, they not only marched around Jericho once a day, they kept silent. And for six days they kept silent. On the seventh day, they marched around six times. On the seventh time, they blew the trumpets and shouted. And, of course, the walls came down. You know the story. What people miss is this precedent silence. And I find it fascinating, the Revelation chapter 8, 1, before introducing the seven trumpets. There's silence in heaven for half an hour. And as I explore this hypothesis that, gee, maybe the book of Joshua is somehow anticipatory of the book of Revelation, I notice something else. That after Jericho, the tribes that remain, of course, are frightened. They align themselves under a leader who calls himself Adonai Zedek. That is, the Lord of Righteousness. And he ultimately gets defeated with signs in the sun and the moon and so forth in the battle of Beth Horon. And when he gets defeated, the kings hide in caves saying, rocks fall on us. Which sounds very much like Revelation 6, as you recall. So I just lay this out. I suggest what you might want to do, and there's no big thing here other than to recognize that this is a possibility. So when you study the book of Joshua and you study the book of Revelation, keep your eye tuned to interesting possible linguistic or structural similarities. I think there's evidence of common design. But there's something else about the book of Joshua most people are not aware of, and that is this whole concept of the Jubilee year. As you may recall in the Torah, it provided for a sabbatical year. Sabbatical, a sabbat, sabbath for a man, six days you work, the seventh you rest. There's also a sabbath of weeks, a group of seven weeks, seven months. Also seven years, six years you plow the lamb, the seventh you let it lay rest. That so-called uh, sabbatical year. What they also were to do, after a week of those, that is a week of weeks of years, in other words, seven times seven, 49 years, the next year was a jubilee year in which all land returned to its owners, all debts were forgiven, and all slaves went free. It was called the time of restitution of all things. It's a very strange ordinance because, first of all, it was instructed to begin after they conquered the land. Presumably they did it in the days of Joshua, but the best of records seem to indicate they never kept that. as one of those things that fell into disuse. What's bizarre about it, you would think that the reckoning of the Jubilee year would begin at the beginning of the year on Rosh Hashanah. Turns out if you look at the text, it begins ten days later on Yom Kippur with no explanation. But it does catch your attention. There's something mysterious about the Jubilee year. What makes this provocative to a student of prophecy is in Acts 3, Peter in his second sermon in the book of Acts speaks of the second coming of Jesus Christ as the time of restitution of all things. The same phrase that one would use of the Jubilee year. And what makes this kind of interesting, we don't know exactly when the Jubilee year is, the rabbis argue about it. Because first of all, we don't know when it started. Not really, exactly. Secondly, some rabbis say it's every 50th year. Others say it's the year after every 49th year. And that grid is a little different. So it turns out, as you know, when you have two rabbis, you've got three opinions. So it, we don't know. But there is, by some reckoning, that we are, we are apparently being plunged into the 70th Jubilee. And prophecy uh, scholars wonder. They suspect deep down in their gut that that's probably going to prove significant. We don't know enough about it to set any dates. I get, I've i got a lot of manuscripts set, sent to me, but frankly none of them really deal with the, the, the pertinent issues. So there are people that write books on this, but at the same time there seems to be a real mystery as to uh, when that would be. So. Enough of that. Okay, uh, let's. Um, we jumped into the, the book, chapter eight, verse one. We've talked about, and of course, we're plunging into these seven, the seven trumpet judgments. I might mention just a little bit of background so you have an overview. There are seven seals. We've talked about those in chapter six. There are se- the seventh seal consists of seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet will consist of seven bowls of wrath poured out. Now, one of the things that's not obvious in your English commentaries, but it's very obvious in the Greek, is that this is a sequence. Some people try to overlay them, try to put this, there's reasons why it would seem that some of these might sound like they're in parallel in some way. And there's some scholars write books on that. But if you do an exegesis of the Greek, it's clear that they are intended to be a sequence. It's almost a logarithmic sequence, obviously a log to the base seven if you're in, in mathematics but in any case uh, that's the structure so we're we're in the se- seventh seal that's going to consist of these seven trumpets and uh, so verse two and, and, and John says I saw the seven angels which stood before God and to them were given seven trumpets and by the way these seven angels have names in the apocrypha These sources are not reliable they're from spurious books but it's interesting that one of the apocrypha books mentions Uriel, Raphael, Ragel, Michael uh and uh, Gabriel and Fanuel is that spurious probably who knows but there are seven <laughs> seven names floating around the traditions in any case one point I want to make in passing don't confuse the trumpet judgments from trumpets in general there are all kinds of trumpets prophetically there are trumpets in the temple the silver trumpets there's also the shofar that sounded at the feast of trumpets that is very relevant. But don't confuse this with the trump of God which only occurs twice in the scripture. Once in Exodus 19 with the giving of the law at Sinai and the other one is by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 dealing with the last trump, the trump of God. Many people assume that the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation is equivalent to the last trump and that's mixing metaphors. These seven trumpets are judgments on the earth These trumpets are not the last trumpets anyway. Because after Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, there are going to be trumpets in the millennial temple. They go on for a thousand years at least. So don't jump to the conclusion that the last trump is somehow linked to the seventh trumpet judgment in the book of Revelation. Some people jump to that conclusion with no real basis. They're really mixing metaphors. So I I don't want to spend a lot of time on that except to alert you to that possible mistake. Verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Now this censer speaks uh, at least idiomatically of frankincense, it was a priestly duty and so forth. I think we've talked enough about this to realize that the idiom of incense and the golden altar is idiomatic of the prayers of the saints. All through the Old Testament and New, you'll find that usage, that expression. We're going to see that amplified in verse 4 here in a minute. But one other comment, it speaks, it stood at the altar. And this invites another study that I encourage you to undertake. If you're going to study your Bible seriously, you want to really understand the architecture of the tabernacle, which of course is amplified in the architecture of the temple. The temple, in fact, has a few things the tabernacle doesn't, and that's very instructive. And the book that we have called The Way of Agape dwells especially on the uniquenesses of the temple as opposed to the tabernacle. But in any case, so I invite you to look at that. But uh, the main thing is that understand that architecture, but also understand that the altar here, and you're going to see the Ark of the Covenant at the end of chapter 11 in the book of Revelation, are the real ones. what I mean by that is, is the ones that are described in the Torah are replicas of what Moses was shown in heaven. You look at the text carefully and this is amplified in the book of hebrews especially in chapters eight nine and ten the writer of the book of hebrews explains that all these things that are venerated in the old testament are replicas of the, the real jesus christ shed his blood not on the altar in jerusalem but the altar in heaven and there is an altar in heaven and that's what's alluded to here so bear in mind we're still in heaven here in this passage not on the earth And, but anyways, we have the golden altar, which is associated with the prayers of all the saints. In uh, verse 4, it says, And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So we have an idiom here that's frequently used in the scripture. We've run into it before. I won't spend more time on it tonight. But we have, in effect, what's before our view here, the prayers of the saints. Now, the prayers that appear to apply here are prayers that I believe Adam prayed, that noah prayed that abraham prayed that david prayed that paul prayed in fact what jesus taught his disciples to pray namely a phrase that we all use without maybe a lot of thought in the lord's prayer we say thy kingdom come thy will be done this highlights the real purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on the earth. Prayer is God's way of enlisting you and I into what he is doing. But thy kingdom come, what does that really mean? And that's what the book of Revelation is bringing to a climax. God is establishing his kingdom in the place of Satan's who is the usurper and what the scripture calls the God of this age. And uh, that's what we're going to start seeing unfolding. Verse 5. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it to the earth, and there were voices, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. This idea of the censure and the colds are very analogous to Isaiah 6, if you recall the vision of the throne of God, that again we have that uh, the, the hot coals used to purge the sinfulness of Isaiah that he confesses. And it's interesting that the one that he sees in Isaiah chapter 6 John 12 41 identifies as Jesus Christ we see Isaiah seeing the throne of God but in John 12:41, John tells us that the one he saw was none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ there But verse 6 and by the way uh, just aside uh, you can one of your most interesting discoveries of the Trinity is the study of Isaiah 6 the Trinity shows up on every page of the Bible it starts in Genesis chapter 1 where it opens up with Elohim the plural the noun used with uh, singular verbs. and uh, But the Isaiah 6 is a very, very illuminating passage. They even say, holy, holy, th- holy, three times, etc. The point is I encourage you, if you haven't studied the Trinity, to, we have a briefing package on that that might be helpful. Verse 6, And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Verse 7, The first angel sounded, and there followed hail, and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of trees was burnt up and all green grass was burnt up wild stuff we're going to discover by the way that these judgments in the trumpets parallel the trumpets in the bowls i'll show you later after we go through these how the the trumpet judgments are about a third of what the bowl judgments are but they're isomorphic that is they're very uh, similar in their design it becomes pretty conspicuous Well, first of all, we encounter this hail. Hail is always used of judgment. You find it in Isaiah 28, Job 38, and so forth. This has also got a parallel in the plagues of Egypt. You may recall in Exodus 7, 8, 9, and so forth, in that area where we have the ten plagues upon the Pharaoh and the people of Egypt that God used to free the nation Israel from their bondage in Egypt. It's interesting, they're not parallel in structure, but you'll find the trumpet judgments, many of them are similar to the ones in Egypt, which raises a basic issue. One of the problems you'll have as you explore commentaries in the book of Revelation is everybody ponders, are these literal or are they figurative? Now there are ways to view these judgments as idiomatic without necessarily denying the literalness of the Bible, because indeed we find various words used idiomatically. Fire is used of God's judgment, and that's, that, that can be used as an idiom. Still taking the Bible very seriously, so this doesn't really divide. Some, I'm not talking about allegorizing them, but I am, there is an issue here: Are these literal, are they literally mean trees? Trees are also used of prominent individuals in, in, as in visions, such as Daniel 4 and elsewhere. We've talked about that. The problem is, I think I te- the other scholars, and I lean this way myself, believe they're literal. Why? Because the plagues in Egypt were literal. When they said the water was turned to blood, it was water turned to blood. And we're going to see that here too. So here we have hail and fire mingled with blood, etc. This is very similar to the seventh plague in Egypt, which is in Exodus chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. Also, it's the same thing described in Joel chapter 2. The word trees here, by the way, is dendron in the Greek, which is fruit trees, actually. So what's implied here is sustenance with both the grass and the trees. Now, you're going to discover that most scholars, I think, tend to believe it's probably both. It's probably literal on the one hand, but it also may be broader in its scope than just looking at these terms denotatively. I think both are, both are valid, and, and I think it's something you uh, take under advisement as you peruse the book. Verse 8 The second angel sounded and is, and as it were a great mountain. Now, here's a phrase which implies it is an idiom, not literal. It says, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire, was cast into the sea. And a third part of the sea became blood. And this is very similar to the first Egyptian plague in, in Exodus 7, which is also reiterated in Psalm 105. This mountain burning with fire cast in the sea is also an idiom in Jeremiah 51, verse 25. It's interesting that more than three-quarters of the world's surface is ocean. In fact, the Pacific command alone covers three, the sink pack. The Pacific Fleet uh, covers three-quarters of the Earth's surface. The Atlantic Ocean covers about a third, interestingly enough. I'm not making any suggestions. I'm just giving you a little background. But uh, the third part of the sea became blood. And so in verse 9, And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third part of the ships were destroyed. Now, see, it's, it's that kind of amplification that causes me to take these things literally. And by the way, a few years ago, there were about 25,000 ocean-going merchant ships registered, just to give you an ex- a feeling for this. So if a third of them get hit, you're talking about o- over 8,000 ships. You'll find the same kind of description in Hosea 4:3, Zephaniah 1, and Isaiah 2, as other places, similar kinds of remarks describing these judgments. Verse 10. The third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning, as it were, a lamp, and it fell upon a third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters. And again, this is very descriptive of what happened in Exodus 15, where the waters were made bitter. On the one hand. On the other hand, you do find the reason some scholars take a different view. There could be a figurative application, because in John 4, Jesus speaks of rivers and water as a source of life. He's using it clearly idiomatically there. And, of course, in Psalm 84, verses 6 and 7, in the Hebrew, the same uh, term is used. Jeremiah 9 and 23 uses similar phrases. But verse 11 continues, And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Now, the Greek word here is the same word we get the word absinthe from. And the word is generally used to be, meaning it's undrinkable, or you can't drink it without harm. In the Old Testament, this term occurs frequently and always implies sorrow, calamity, sort of like hemlock or bitterness. Now, it's kind of interesting that uh, you you find these same terms in Jeremiah 9 and 23, Lamentations 3 and, and Amos 5, other places. So you can take a concordance and track those down if you like. The application figurative can be justified by sound scholars, so I'm not quarreling with that on the one hand. On the other hand, I think there's a very real possibility this may be referring to something very, very literal. You might find it provocative to know what the Russian word for wormwood is. It's Chernobyl. And that's kind of just a piece, I don't know what you do with that piece of information, but I thought you might find it provocative. By the way, the National Geographic Society lists about hundred principal rivers in the world, and the U.S. Geological Survey lists about thirty of the large ones here in the United States. So it would seem, if you take this literally, and I think I do, that something, some cataclysmic event is going to render water uh, dangerous. And that, of course, causes havoc on the planet Earth. Verse 12, And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, a third part of the moon, a third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. This also is very analogous to the ninth plague on Egypt in Exodus 10, which incidentally lasted three days, a darkness obscuring and so forth. We're going to see a, a similar kind of thing occur in Revelation 16. We'll take it on then again. Jesus mentions it in Matthew 24, verses 29 to 30, and Luke 21, verses 25 through 28. Now, we usually go to the Matthew account, but just for a change, let's go to the Luke account. Luke, the Matthew 24 and Luke 21 being very analogous renderings of the confidential briefing that Jesus gave his disciples when they asked him about his second coming. But the, the, the Luke passage might be kind of fun to take a look at. In verse 25 of Luke 21, we'll read about four verses here. Jesus said, And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Incidentally, before we go on, it's kind of interesting, you see, you can treat these as idioms if you like, but you do get the impression there's no reason to. It seems very, very straightforward. Uh, there were signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. That seems straightforward enough. We're not talking about a vision here. We're talking about an assertive statement by the Lord. When you see visions and stuff, often the, the, the idioms of the vision uh, are use these, these traditional symbols. But here we have it pretty straightforward. In the earth, and, and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity. Boy, I can imagine. If these things start, that people are going to get upset. But it says, And with the sea and the waves roaring verse 26 men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory and when these things begin to come to pass and he's here talking about the whole briefing here "Uh, look up for your redemption draweth nigh draweth near Whenever I see verse 29, 26, I'm reminded of Walter Martin, uh, my partner and I were the guys that brought him to the West Coast. And Walter has had, a, has had a marvelous ministry dealing with the uh, pseudo-Christian cults and such, probably uh, greater than any living pe- person ever has. But Walter also had a fixation on UFOs, and especially in that time. We're talking about the early 70s when we first brought him to the West Coast and all that. And I served on his board for many years, and we pleaded with him. To stay off that subject. Not that he wasn't right or wrong about his view. it just we felt that getting tangled up in that subject would discredit the rest of his ministry. Because people even to this day, but especially back then, regarded that as a realm of kooks and nuts. But whenever Walter was before an audience and they'd start asking you open up to questions. And and Walter had any excuse. He would get into the UFO thing. But I remember... (laughs) He would always use this verse 26. He'd say, uh, uh, The men's hearts failing them for fear and looking after those things which are coming upon the earth. And he'd always gesture, you know, with the, these things that were coming on the earth. Because <laughs> he saw that as, as referring to UFOs. And I'm not saying it isn't, but I, whenever I see that verse, I'm always reminded by Walter's fixation on those things. But the verse also has interesting things it's the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now, we always are victims of translations, and this is a perfectly valid translation, but it's kind of interesting to see the words that make up in the Greek here. The word heavens is uranos. It's the word from which we get the word uranium. It may have nothing to do with anything, just a curious background. The word for powers is dunamis, which is the same word from which we get the word dynamite. And the word shaken is actually celeo, or der- der- derivation of that, which means to set off balance. And so uh, some some commentators can't resist uh, pointing that out. There could be a pun involved in here. And it wouldn't surprise me, because the Holy Spirit frequently does deal in puns of various kinds. I mentioned that just in passing for curiosity's sake. Similar predictions are made in Hebrews 12, verses 26 through 28. Isaiah 30 verse 26 and Joel 2 speaks of the darkness and so forth. uh, These dramatic events that are occurring here are referred to uh, in several places, especially in the Old Testament. But then we get to verse 13, and I beheld and heard. Your English Bible says an angel, and that's an unfortunate translation. Even your Strong's guide will confuse you on that. The word in the Greek is aitos; it's actually an eagle. No big deal, and yet be sensitive to the fact that that's an error from the text. I beheld and heard an eagle flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, 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 to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. Now, we're going to discover that this eagle appears only four times in the scripture. It appears here. It'll, It'll be seen again. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, and also there's a strange cryptic phrase in the Olivet Discourse, both Matthew 24:28 or Luke 17:37, in which uh, the body is, that's where the eagles are gathered together. And scholars of all different persuasions have no idea what that really means. They all make conjectures, but the truth of the matter is that the more you study that passage, the more ambiguous it really turns out to be. In any case, we have an eagle flying in the midst of heaven, which is announcing, you haven't seen anything yet. We've heard four trumpets blow. And these four trumpets are the first four of a series of seven. The last three of the seven are called the woe judgments because of of this verse 13. We're going to discover that trumpets five, six, and seven are very, very, they're even worse than these first four. These first four are, in a sense, judgments against nature, judgments against the creation. They, dramatic as they are, they seem to be in the realm of the creation itself, the physical creation uh, as we think of it. The next three are, the next couple at least, are very demonic in their complexion. They're a lot worse. I'd like to comment on another phrase that shows up here. It says, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Or to be more precise, what that really should say is, to those whose home is on the earth. So it's understandable why they call it inhabitants. And yet it's a strange phrase you need to be sensitive to in your study of the book of Revelation. Because you'll discover that phrase occurs twelve times throughout the book. The book of Revelation deals with the earth dwellers those who dwell upon the earth, those whose home is on the earth, those whose, whose whose world is indeed the earth. And the contrast that you want to be sensitive to before you're all through, you'll realize they're contrasted with those whose citizenship is in heaven. Those who dwell on the earth is apparently not used in the book of Revelation as an all-inclusive term of everybody that happens to be on the earth. That's the way we tend to look at it. But you'll discover as you examine the twelve uh, places it occurs, you begin to realize that the book of Revelation is polarized. There are those who dwell on the earth, and there are those that are happen to be here for a while, but whose citizenship is elsewhere. And there are several different groups of those, by the way, but they're all... the, the, the difference is whether they're saved or unsaved. To give you an example of that, you might turn to Revelation 13. We'll look ahead a little bit just to, to get the perspective here. In Revelation 13, verse 8, it says, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. He's speaking here of the Antichrist. or this world leader. We'll call him what you will. He has 33 titles in the Old Testament, 13 in the New. We generally use the term rather loosely. We call him the Antichrist. He was given unto him, uh, verse 8, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Interesting. So this is one of those places you should alert yourself to, to realize that when it speaks of those who dwell upon the earth, it's using that in a very special sense. Now the verse before that is provocative, let's just touch on it as long as we're here. It says, and it was given to him, verse 7, it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations." Daniel 11.41 will note a a single exception, and that's the the nation called Jordan, and uh, that's provocative. It's a conjecture on our part, but we believe that that region is reserved as a place for the remnant to flee to when Jerusalem's under siege, as we will explore when we get to the Zechariah 12 passage and the rest. But there's an interesting contradiction that would seem to be here says, so it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. The word in the Greek is Nikeo, to overcome or prevail over. And yet, if you remember Matthew 16, Jesus at Caesarea Philippi, speaking to Philip, speaking of the church, says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Prevail, overcome, same word. Well, on the one hand, we have the commitment of Jesus Christ that the church will not be overcome by the powers of Satan. And yet here, we have Here it says that uh, it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Now, this is not an incidental uh, uh, reference. You'll also discover that this is in in the Daniel prophecies also. And this is one of the clues that the saints, all saints, are not in the same category. We always jump to the conclusion. And, of course, saint, I think most of us in this audience are sophisticated enough to realize that we're not using the term saint in the historical church sense where someone is venerated as a saint in the, what I'll call, excuse the expression, secular sense. The word saint in the scripture is someone that is one of God's people, one of those that, those that are saved. Any of you that are in Jesus Christ are a saint, independent of the church putting a statue in the lobby of you or something. Okay. So, so understand the word saint biblically is used quite differently than the church has chosen to use it throughout history as some kind of special category, if you will. But we do discover the word saints or the elect and the church are not synonyms. The word saint or elect is used very broadly. The word church is used very narrowly. And one of the great discoveries that you and I need to make is to discover the mystery of the body of Christ. To discover there are benefits that pertain to the body of Christ that are unique to the body of Christ. That blew Paul away. Paul was a Pharisee. He understood the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the, the Spirit of God could, would uh, come and go. Saul had it, but then lost it. The New Testament teaching is clear that in the body of Christ, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are without repentance. He may take you out of the ballgame, as he did with a the couple there in the book of Acts. But <laughs> but uh, the, the gifts are without repentance. The sealing that you and I enjoy of the Holy Spirit is unique to the body of Christ. And Paul tries to get that across in his epistles. Most of us don't understand the solution because we don't understand the problem. What, what difficulty is having with that. And one of the other passages that uh, is worth mentioning as we go here is where Jesus speaks of John the Baptist and says, "No man born of woman is better is greater than John." That's quite that's quite an appellation, isn't it? And yet in the ne- in this next breath he says, "He that's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John." What? You mean John the Baptist wasn't saved? No, of course not. Of course he was saved. And yet. We don't really understand this until we discover from Luke 16, 16 and other passages. We all think of the Old Testament as ending in the book of Malachi. Or Malachi, if you're Italian, either way. But the book—the Old Testament ends with John the Baptist. And it's, it, the Bible expressly says so in Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. It says that several places. So that's the point that Jesus is making. Is that uh, he's using the term kingdom of heaven there to refer to something very, very special. He's using it denotatively in that sense. And that becomes clear when this mystery of the church is revealed. It's not really revealed clearly, I think, until Ephesians 3, where Paul lays it out. Because it was his privilege to reveal that which was hidden prior to that. The mystery of the church. Most people are confused about the so-called rapture of the church. Not because of their confusion about eschatology or uh, prophecy. They're confused because they don't really understand ecclesiology. They don't really understand this unique period we're in and the unique benefits that are available to us. This unique period started with Pentecost, as we call it, Acts chapter 2, and it continues until the rapture. But the Holy Spirit's got lots to do. In fact, His richest harvest, apparently, will occur after the rapture of the church in this peculiar period that scholars typically call the tribulation saints. And one of the clues to this occurs right here in Revelation 13, 7, and also occurs in Daniel 7 and 8 and elsewhere. So much for the inhabitants of the earth. Be alert to that as we go through the book of Revelation, because it uses the term very, very in a very, very special sense. I'm going to resist Getting into uh, Revelation chapter 9 and the next three uh, uh, seals in detail because there's a number of issues I want to be able to deal with at our leisure later. But but what I'd like to do to sort of recap where we are today is to examine the trumpets versus the bowls. The trumpets occur in chapter 8 and, and 9. Of Revelation, The bowl judgments occur in chapter 16. We're going to discover when we get to the seventh trumpet, it gives rise to seven bowls of God's wrath poured out upon the earth. We'll discover the first of the seven bowls in chapter 16 are aimed at the earth and the beast worshipers. The first of the trumpets is aimed at the earth and one third of the earth is affected. The second bowl judgment in Revelation 16 is aimed at the sea, in which all die. And, of course, the trumpet, the second trumpet judgment, was aimed at the sea in terms of one-third died. The third bowl in Revelation 16 is aimed at the waters, presumably fresh water in contrast to the salt water of the oceans. And the trumpet, same thing. In the third trumpet, we had one-third of the waters made bitter and so forth and the fourth bowl is aimed at the Sun and there's scorching and all kinds of cosmic events occur and again in the trumpet judgments it's a foreshadowing of that in a sense because again we have Sun and Moon and things happening but again it's an issue of one-third so you'll discover that these first four trumpets are sometimes called by the scholars the judgment of thirds it's somewhat similar in in its focus as the bowl judgments but they are less intense pretty heavy As we think about that, it's frightening to realize what's going to happen to the earth during this period of time. And yet, it's nothing compared to what's going to happen when the bowls are poured out, which get very climactic. Now, when you get to the fifth bowl, it's poured out on the throne of the beast, and the air becomes darkened. And uh, in, in the fifth trumpet we're going to discover, which is the first of the three woes, we find the abuso opened this abyss, and we want to spend some time and redevelop that uh, when we're together uh, next time. The sixth bowl is poured out on the Euphrates and prepares the ways of the kings of the east to engage in the battle we call Armageddon. And it's interesting, the uh, sixth trumpet, which is the second woe, the last three trumpets being called woe judgments, is the demon army. And uh, again, we find a, a, a parallel all the way through. And of course, in the seventh trumpet, we're going to have the claim laid to the kingdom. And in the seventh bowl, we'll have it is finished or it is done, declared in Babylon Falls, etc. Now, again, it's interesting that between the sixth and seventh trumpets, you'll find a change of subject. When we get through the sixth Trumpet in Daniel chapter in Revelation chapter nine. We discover chapter ten and eleven change the subject. It'll be very different. The, the it's a sequence of the trumpets are interrupted, so to speak, with some other discussion. Chapter ten and eleven will be a special uh, a study. We'll take at that time. When we get through the bowls, you'll discover that between the sixth and seventh bowls poured out, there's just one verse. But again, it's sort of a respite or a catching of the breath or a change of subject. Now, if you're going to study these judgments seriously, then what you're also going to probably want to do as a supplemental study is to take a look at the plagues of Egypt. And uh, first of all, uh, by studying the plagues and understanding them, you may get a perspective of these plagues and judgments that are being brought upon the earth in the book of Revelation. One of the things you need to recognize in the plagues of Egypt is that they were judgments against the gods that they were worshiping. You'll find that in Numbers 33, 4, and also in Judges 10, 14. As you go through these strange things, the the frogs and the lice and all this stuff, these all related to the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Part of what was involved is a public display of power. God admits that in Exodus 9, verse 16. And also as a warning to the nations. In fact, it was Rahab, awareness of that, that was evident when spies visited her in Jericho and so forth. And the Philistines also make reference to this in 1 Samuel 4 and elsewhere. When you study the patterns of the ten plagues in Egypt, you notice some strange things. You'll notice that the first plague has a warning beforehand. They're warned beforehand. The second plague, they're warned beforehand. The first one is the waters returned to blood. They were warned about that. And it happened. Second one, and that was in Exodus chapter 7. In chapter 8, it opens up with a warning and then frogs populate the, the land of the homes. That was the second plague with the plagues of frogs. Again, both those preceded by warnings. The third plague had no warning. That was lice on the persons. And I'll come back to that in a minute. The uh, fourth plague, there was a warning. That was the flies on the homes. Chapter, again, chapter 8. The fifth plague, there was a warning. Disease on cattle and such. The sixth plague, again no warning. Boils and sores, man and beast and so forth. Uh, the seventh plague of the ten had a warning. Thunder and hail. The eighth one had a warning. Uh, that locusts and all that. And then there was no warning for darkness for three days. Then there was a warning for the final one, which was the firstborn, uh, the tenth plague uh, in, in chapters 11 and 12 of the book of Exodus. The point is, you notice that there's warning, warning, no warning. Warning, warning, no warning. There's a pattern. Those, those patterns are even stranger. The first three plagues are associated with the rod of Aaron. The next three plagues, there's no rod mentioned. The next three plagues is the rod of Moses, not Aaron. Interesting that there's two rods involved. And I mention this only to be sensitive to the idea of structure. And uh, if you look at the ten plagues, the first and tenth had to do with death. The second and ninth had to do with darkness. The third and eighth had to do with admission by their enemies. Four and seven, Goshen was exempted. Five and six, there were cattle involved. There's patterns here is my, my point. And I think these patterns are, are provocative. When they have the the uh, third plague, the lice, this is a strange plague that you and I generally don't understand. But see, what it did, it prevented worship by their, their priests. Because the priests had to be lice-free. It was expressed in their in their religion. Also, the priests could not reproduce this one. See, the previous ones, previous uh, couple of them, the frogs and so on, the priests somehow had a way to replicate. The priests of Egypt apparently... Uh, created wonders. Remember this business with the uh, snakes and the rest. So they were. Most of us tend to think these are parlor tricks, but the scripture would have us understand that these people, in fact, could draw upon uh, the powers of darkness. They, the priests had done, uh, had replicated. It. They turned their rods into serpents in chapter seven. They turned water into blood, and they brought the frogs. The reason I bring this up is we're going to discover in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, the enemies of God do miracles. We're not ready for that. We're not ready for any of this. But um, <laughs> the enemies of God do miracles. Uh, the fourth uh, plague was the uh, the flies on their homes. You have to remember what Beelzebub means. The Lord of the Flies. One of the things they worshipped. And on it goes. And finally, even at the eighth plague, with the locusts, Pharaoh admits that. He says, I have sinned. He, he makes that confession. There's darkness for three days. And of course, you know, the climactic thing, of course, is the death of the firstborn. It's very interesting that in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses first called, God speaks of Israel as His firstborn. The nation is said to have been born through that whole experience. Let's go ahead and, and since we have a little time, and next time's a full plate, let's jump in a little bit to, let's at least read through chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9 verse 1, we're going to speak of the fifth trumpet here. We've had four in chapter 8 so far, now we get to these spooky ones. The, the ones that are called the three woe judgments. And the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit or the abuso, if you will. And he opened the bottomless pit and there arose up a smoke out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. and there came up came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, nor any tree, but only those men who have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man." and in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them and the shapes of the locusts were like horses prepared unto battle and on their heads were as it were crowns like gold and their faces were like the faces of men and they, and they had hair like the hair of women and their teeth were like the teeth of lions and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them who is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon. But in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter." Now, suddenly we realize that this trumpet—all the other ones are pretty rough, pretty frightening—but there's something really different going on here. And we have these strange creatures. A couple of comments about this: that uh, before we get into the substance of them, you'll notice in verse four that they could—they should not—they could only hurt those men who have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Who would that be? That would be the results of chapter seven, if you recall, right? I mentioned that, which is not obvious, but this is another one of his confirmation that these things are sequential. Chapter 7 has to precede the events of chapter 9. And I mention that because uh, it's very tempting sometimes to shuffle the deck here a little bit. No, these things are intended to be sequential in that sense. Let's first of all talk about this bottomless pit, the Abuso. Strange place. You may recall when Jesus was at Gadara and they had the demoniac, this guy that was, had, uh, was possessed with demons. How many demons were in him, by the way? 2,000, right? As I recall. But in any, in any case, uh, if you recall that the demons plead with Jesus not to be sent to the Abuso. And requested that they be allowed to enter this herd of swine. Strange passage. And then Jesus, of course, grants them their wish. They enter this herd of swine. They go off the cliff and drown. Making them very unpopular in that particular region, obviously. <laughs> well, this that little episode at Gadara raises all kinds of questions. First of all, what were a herd of swine doing in Jewish country? And the answer is it wasn't Jewish country. It was the Decapolis. It was a Roman area. Which is one reason you had the demon experiences going on there. But the point is... Makes you wonder, first of all, why Jesus granted the permission. You know, they asked not to be sent to the Abuso, and they wanted to be sent to the Suwanis City. He says, okay, go. And who knows? There's all kinds of speculation. One byproduct of that episode is it tells us that demon possession is not an idiom for what we generally think in, in today's world as psychiatric problems. Because those demons recognized who Jesus was before it was announced publicly. They bellow at him, what have you got to do with us? He speaks of him as the Son of God, and what does he have to do with them before the time? They knew who he was, they knew he was the Son of God, and they also knew they were destined for punishment, but it wasn't time yet. This isn't some delusion by some character in the, in the, in among the, the rocks out there. These were sentient beings. And one of, the things that, one of the things you need to recognize is Scripture teaches that these things are real. Knowledgeable, sentient beings. They, for some reason, fear being chained in the abuso. We'll come to that in a minute. But one step, I think there's, there's two reactions that are unfortunate having to do with demons. One is to assume they don't exist or to assume that there's some kind of cultural hangover linguistically or something. No, they're very real. The two mistakes are to deny their existence. That's naive and dangerous. The other mistake is to get overly preoccupied with them and you start studying demonology biblically and you can start seeing a spook behind every tree. That's also a mistake. So if you start getting into this, start worrying about it. Remember what the scripture tells you is that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Who is in the world? Satan is. Who is in you? Jesus Christ. I wouldn't get into this unless you're called to it. But if you're called to it, to it do your homework. And because these things are, are real. They are dangerous. They cannot involve you without your permission. Well, how do they get your permission? By, f- by frivolous pursuits, such as Ouija boards, horoscopes, things that are done as entertainment. Make no mistake, these things are dangerous. They're called by the uh, technical, they're technically known as entries. That's where they gain a foothold. So if you're into any of this, You want to get out of it, and you want to expressly bring it before the throne of God and deny it, and rebuke it. Many people who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ seem to have all kinds of problems even after their conversion. And one of the reasons they do is because they have not expressly renounced that which they were into before. Get rid of it. I have never met a Christian who has seen a flying saucer. I I understand from the researchers that there has never been an abduction experience, whatever that is, by anyone that hasn't had a prior involvement with the occult. These things are dangerous. Getting back to the abuso, though, where is the abuso? I believe the Scripture tells us where it is. I think it's a literal place. I think there really is an abuso. And And this may surprise you as a guy that's got graduate degrees in the various sciences. I believe that the abuso is at the center of the earth. There's an old children's riddle about these hunters that uh, marched about 10 miles south of their camp and they found bear tracks going west. They went west about 10 miles where they found the bear, shot him, and they carried him 10 miles north back to camp. And the question in the riddle is, what color was the bear? Well, the bear has to be white because the only place you can go south, west, and then north back to where you turned is at the pole. Okay? And it's a little silly little children's riddle. But the point is, where in the geometry of, uh, that we know of, can there be a pit that has no bottom? See, the problem at the pole is, if you're at the North Pole, every direction is south. Right? If you're the center of the earth, every direction is up. You take a sphere or a, a, a space at the center of the earth, it has, that's the only place I can think of that it has no bottom. Think about it. Now... The concept of Hades, don't confuse Hades and and, uh, Gehenna. We use the term hell for both of them, it's unfortunate ambiguity. Hades is a temporary place, the abode of the dead. The Hebrew word is Sheol, the Greek word is Hades. Jesus indicated that Hades was at the belly of the earth. The Gehenna is in the outer darkness. Geometrically, they're in opposition. And Gehenna is permanent. Hades is a temporary. We're going to see the destiny of Hades later in the book of Revelation. So this business of the the Abuso is an interesting place if for no other reason than we'll discover later in the book that that's where the Antichrist comes from also. And we'll talk about some of the curious theories that people have about who he really is when we get to those passages. The Abuso is opened here, there rose smoke out of the pit and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke. And then come these strange locusts. Now, it's interesting that they, did not, they didn't have the power to kill, but just to torment. And we have these bizarre descriptions, and many commentators can't resist visualizing them as engines of war. Because they flutter like choppers, and they've got all these strange designs on them, who knows. And you can visualize that. But there's something else to recognize, that there's no scaling here these things could be microscopic for all you know see these things could be quite different than most people might imagine I'm not proposing anything specific but the important verse I believe is verse 11 it says that they had a king over them who is the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon or in the Greek tongue has his name Apollyon these words mean destroyer now we know who the destroyer is but I'd like you to turn to Proverbs chapter 30 verse 27 the book of Proverbs, I am mention these partly to illuminate uh, this business of, 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 of Revelation 9, but also to get an insight how God works, how the Holy Spirit works. You get to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 27. The Scripture tells us that the locusts have no king. Yet go forth, uh, all of them by bands. And goes. It talks here about badgers in verse 26 and spiders in verse 28. In verse 27, we get a nature lesson. The Book of Proverbs tells us that the locusts have no king. Now, if you're a normal, well-adjusted Bible reader and you read through the Book of Proverbs, you come across that, you keep moving, you don't worry about it. But if you've been to a Chuck Mister Bible study, you're no longer a well-adjusted, normal human being. <laughs> Because you'll remember I made the remark that every detail in the scripture is there by design. The Holy Spirit wanted you to know the locusts have no king. So would you be an expert on biology? No. So when you get to Revelation chapter 9 and verse 11, that says they have a king over them. You realize that the term locusts is used idiomatically. These aren't natural locusts. They're something that are in some sense like locusts. Now, why, is that, uh, why am I bringing that out? First of all, I want to, if nothing else out of these studies, to sensitize you to recognize that every number, every detail, every place name, every subtlety in the original text of the Scripture of these 66 books that we glibly call the Bible, although penned by 40 authors over thousands of years, are an integrated message system. I had an interesting experience a few years ago. Hal Lindsay and I were doing a report on uh, Ezekiel 38. And unrelated to that, I happen to be studying the book of Amos. In Amos chapter 7-1, there's a strange verse. Don't bother looking it up. It speaks of of, uh, some locusts and uh, they were there before the king's mowings, whatever that means. It's it's, it's a very peculiar passage. In the Septuagint, it reads very differently. Our English Bible is taken from the Masoretic text, which is about the 9th century A.D. The Septuagint is the translation of the Old Testament into Greek three centuries before Christ was born. And it has some interesting differences from time to time. This is one of those places different. Because in the Septuagint rendering of Amos 7.1, it points out that there was a herd of locusts coming, and one of the young, devastating locusts was Gog the king. And that startled me, because if you, if you canvass the commentaries in Ezekiel 38, no one knows who Gog is. They know, by context, he's the leader of Magog. Magog, of course, being the Scythians or the Russians in that famous battle. But the fact that Gog is the king of the locusts tells us from this experience from Revelation 9 and and Proverbs 30, verse 27, is that a a group of locusts that have a king are a demon horde, that he's a demon leader. It's a spiritual term, not a tangible denotative term we think of. And that gives us a whole clue into understanding Ezekiel 38 better. So the point is, again, one of the things in Bible prophecy, I think, if you're going to be serious about it, you need to take the text seriously and watch for the details. Well, we're going to talk more about these three woe judgments next time, as we plunge into more into more depth in chapter nine and chapter. We'll take chapter nine and ten next time. A couple of quick things. If these judgments we're talking about frighten you, well, in a sense, that's probably constructive because they're intended to. (laughs) But let's also remember uh, that that material that we've covered earlier. For a variety of reasons that I think we've, we've talked about at de- in depth in the past. We'll talk about some more as we go. Uh, and that is that the church does not appear in the book of Revelation after chapter 3. From chapter 4, verse 1 on, you'll be watching these events, if you're in Christ, from heaven. If you're in Jesus Christ, these judgments should have no concern to you. Because these judgments are all involved with the wrath of God. And 1 Thessalonians 5.9 points out that we are not appointed to wrath. In Revelation 3.10, we are expressly promised that we will not be in this physical domain, in this time domain, when these things occur. We've talked about that a lot. It's an important issue for lots of reasons. Not the least of which is that there's a lot of evidence that these things are on the horizon as we speak. But you and I, if you're in Jesus Christ, should have no fear of these judgments. These judgments are intended to purge the earth in preparation for the coming King. But the concept of these judgments frightens us, and in a sense it is intended to. These judgments tend to sober us. They are also intended to humble us. And they are intended to correct us. You and I go about our lives day by day. We need to prioritize our lives in terms of our king even though we have the express commitments that we won't be in these judgments i think that all these things are intended on the one hand correct our own behavior and secondly reassure us of our position in our coming king so uh, let's stand for a closing word of prayer let's bow our hearts father as we look to your judgments upon this earth, as we look to the preparations for the establishment of your kingdom on the earth, as we look to your dealing at long last with unrighteousness, with injustice, with the blasphemy of this world and its leaders. We do pray as you've instructed us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And yet, Father, as we behold these heavy, heavy events just beginning in our narrative, we come before your throne in thanksgiving, Father, that you have chosen us before we have chosen you, that you have gone to such extremes to provide us a redemption in Jesus Christ. It's available just for the asking. We thank you, Father, that you have brought us together right now at this point in time to celebrate that redemption that you provided for us that frees us from these judgments that will come upon those who dwell upon the earth. Father, we would pray that indeed you would Increase in each of us a hunger and appetite for your word. Help us, Father, to discern that which you would have us understand from these passages. Help us, Father, that in these things, to grow in grace the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And Father, we would also ask you through the leading of your Holy Spirit and the illumination of your word help each of us to discover that specific agenda those specific priorities that you would have of us in these days that remain that we each might be more responsive to your will in our lives that we indeed might be fruit bearing servants with the opportunities that you've crafted for each of us individually for father we bring all these things before your throne And recommit ourselves before you in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.